let uh, let me welcome you uh, to Gospel in the World. Uh, we were trying to think earlier, so if somebody comes in, uh, what what do you want them to get, or what do you think they would say they're coming to? Uh, and sadly, I had kind of a hard time uh, describing that, uh, but I would say I hope you come away from uh, tomorrow uh, with a sense of what is exciting to Redeemer here locally and around the world, what we're involved in, uh, what we're giving our resources to. So you get a picture of that. But you also leave encouraged, challenged, convicted, uh, and a whole lot of other things from uh, the things that uh, Richard has to say to us. Uh, the way the weekend goes, basically uh, five hours, five and a half hours together, uh, we're going to hear from some of our partners in little brief reports throughout. So after the first session, uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back in. We'll hear from um, uh, Life Choice, the pregnancy center here in town that Redeemer is very involved in. Uh, we'll have another session. Uh, and then at the end of that session, we'll hear a little bit about what's going on with Heart for Winter Haven. Uh, and then we'll conclude for the evening. We'll come back tomorrow, uh, 8.30, from 8.30 to 9. We'll have some uh, coffee, uh, pastries, bagels, and so forth out front. Uh, Lord willing, the weather is going to be really nice. So come, come at 8.30 sit uh, and uh, talk and fellowship, and at 9 we'll get started, and tomorrow we're going to hear from a couple of our international partners, missionaries that are uh, on the field. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to be able to Skype actually with one of them uh, live, so that should be fun. Uh, but that's the weekend. Uh, I want you to welcome Richard Pratt. Uh, he, he goes by Richard. Um, I remember from seminary, some people calling him Dr. Pratt. He was like, please don't call me that. Call me Richard. That's my name. Uh, and so when you address him uh, just it might feel weird, but uh, but address him as Richard. Uh, he's the president of Third Millennium Ministries. Uh, it's a ministry that is dedicated to giving, uh, according to their website, biblical education to the world for free. Uh, and so they have uh, a great deal of resources available in a great deal of languages. You'd be amazed if I told you some of the languages. Um, and uh, he's got a lot of partnerships around the world with various folks. Uh, but as Drew mentioned to you Sunday, both of us had him in seminary. Uh, a lot of what he taught us and just the, the, the spirit of some of the things that he said have had a great deal of impact on us over the years. Uh, and so we're excited to get to welcome him and grateful that he's come. So uh, Richard, if you would, uh, come on up. It's all the way in the back. Hi, everybody. I'm really glad you came out. I was joking with somebody earlier that um, you must really be bored to come to church on Friday night, huh? I hope we can keep this from being boring. I can't promise that I can do that, but I'm excited that you came, and I thank you for doing it. And I'm especially happy that you would come out knowing what we're going to talk about. Do you know what we're going to talk about? Act like you do, please, because you're going to get a great compliment if you'll say, yeah, I knew this. It's all about the gospel and the world, or right, um, which is a nice way of saying um, what we're going to do for the world. Or in the old way, we used to call that like a missions conference. You ever heard of those before? Okay. Now, I grew up with missions conferences, and that usually meant slideshows from uh, you know, National Geographic pictures and things like that. So it was very exciting for me on the back row like those guys back there were. But... Um, that was funny, wasn't it? Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. What, he say National Geographic pictures? They don't even, you know, if you're under 50, you don't even know what that is, I know. But, um, but, but I'm just thrilled to death that a church would even have a weekend like this, a Friday and a Saturday, that they give themselves over to the mission. And I'm absolutely thrilled that you would come. There it is, okay? Because this is what my life is about in a weird sort of way, but it's also something that, uh, it's supposed to be, everybody that follows Jesus is supposed to be on that thing that we call the mission. Okay, and you may not feel like you are, that's okay. And you may have been dragged here by your wife. Did she drag you here tonight? You had to drag her? Okay, well maybe, okay, maybe you got <laughs> dragged here by your husband then. And you know, you sort of go, you know, I've all, I mean, what else could you say about this thing called the mission anyway? What? I mean, I already feel bad enough already that I'm not reaching out to people. Mm -hmm. 
I already feel guilty about that, so what, am I going to get a big dose of guilt? I hope not. Although, if you need it, let's give it, okay? <laughs> be all right with me. Um, I'm excited about the mission because I'm absolutely convinced that it's um, the part of Christianity that um, our kinds of Christians tend to overlook more than anybody else. And you can see the result of that. And we are in a very tragic time in our own country and in many other parts of the world. And a lot of the tragedy that we see around us is because um, we just haven't felt like the mission's all that important. What I'd like to do, can we start off with the Bible? Is that okay? Okay, I don't know. You like the Bible here? Okay. Uh, let's go to the very first page. You know, if you're going to start, you should maybe sometimes we should start at the beginning. So we're going to look at the very first time that God, as far as we know, that God ever talked about us. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. This is easy to find. I'll tell you the page number. <laughs> 1. Okay? Genesis chapter 1. Remember now, this is the first time, as far as we know, God ever said anything about us. It starts in verse 26. Here we go. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, a lot of us here have heard these words before. And so we turn to you now, asking you to come to us and to teach us these words that were spoken thousands and thousands of years ago. We ask you, please, to send your Holy Spirit to us. May he come and may he fill every heart in this room. On a Friday night, may he come and energize us and open our eyes to see and soften our hearts to feel the things that you would have us feel. Um, motivate us, Lord, so that we can learn these things and do them in a way that will please you. And if you will do that, we will give you the glory for it. Amen. When I was about 10 years old, I finally figured out how old I was when this happened. When I was about 10 years old, I had what I would now call a, a great privilege. I didn't call it then. Uh, my dad worked on the railroad, the Norfolk and Western Railroad in Virginia. And they were on strike, and they knew they were going to be on strike for the whole summer. So my parents got this great idea that they were going to add a room to their house that summer. All right, great. That sounds good to me. I'd like to have a good TV room. But they decided that what they wanted to do was um, to conscript me into working on that room with my dad. So I spent the whole summer from morning, from sunrise to sunset, every single day working on this room that they were adding to their house. Learned a lot about carpentry. I learned a lot about building. It was great. I say that now. I just complained the whole time, you know, when I was doing it, of course. But I can remember my mom would leave every day, go to, going to the office where she worked, and um, she'd just say every morning, she would just say the same thing over and over again. I don't care about anything except that it, this room doesn't look like it was added to the house. So we worked real hard to make it not look like it was added to the house. You know, we made sure that the floors were even. We made sure that the brickwork matched up. We made sure the windows were just right, that the pitch of the roof. I mean, as far as my dad and I were concerned, as far as my dad, what, did I do that? Do you know what I did? I guess that's a good sound effect, though. But I need to time it. Um, but anyway... <laughs> Um, every evening my mom would come home and we didn't want to show her all the stuff we had done. And she would just rebuff us and she would say, I don't care about anything except that this room doesn't look like it was added to the house. Now, we worked really, really hard to make it look like it was a part of the original floor plan of the house, 
But I can guarantee you, if you went to Roanoke, Virginia, and saw my parents' house today, it would take you about two seconds before you'd say, that room was added to that house. <laughs> it's obvious. Because that's the way it is. Unless you're a master architect and a master builder, if you add a room to a house, it looks like it was added to the house. I don't care how you try for it not to be that way. And in some ways, I think that's the way most of us think about this thing that we call the mission. It's a room that we add to our Christianity. This idea that we've got to take the word of Jesus to all the world, that we should be talking to other people about our faith, that we should be letting people into our lives and things like that. You know, we all kind of know that's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. But, you know, we'll do that when other things are straightened out. You know, the essential things. Like, I've raised my kids or I've got enough money to pay my mortgage, or I've got my 401k, I got it all set up. I've got this taken care of and that taken care of because, you know, those are the essential things. And then once I get those things done, then, okay, maybe I'll go on a short-term mission trip or maybe I'll go down to the pregnancy center or maybe I'll do this or maybe I'll do that. I might even give a little extra money to the mission program. Once I get all the main things done, okay? But what I want to say to you tonight is that being on mission, and by that I mean being committed and actually living out that we are taking a message to people about Jesus, that that's not a room to be added to your house. It's really the original floor plan of what it means to follow Jesus. It's even more basic than that. It's the original floor plan of what it means to be a human being. Now, everybody in the room tonight qualifies for that. It's what it means to be a human being, that you are on mission for Jesus. So if you're breathing the air, we're talking about you. If you're still alive, I don't care how old you are or how young you are, we're talking about you. That's how essential it is. Now, you know, you can find this mission of ours in lots of places in the Bible, but I suppose if we really want to get down and see just how basic it is, that, I mean, you know, I just said something pretty radical here, that if you're a human being, you're on mission then maybe we need to go back and look at this passage we just read. Again, it's the passage where, as far as we know, uh, this is the first thing that God ever said about us. And what we're going to discover is that the mission we have began here. The first thing God ever said about you and me. So let's get right back to the very basic, the most essential idea that God had when he made human beings. Let's look first at the, t the title that God gave people, what he called us. You remember what he called us? Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, if you were to ask most people who go to churches like this one, <clears throat> I'm going to say two words, and I want you to respond immediately. Human beings, the first thing that usually comes to our minds is sinners. Human beings, sinners. Okay, fine. If, if you have any doubt that you're a sinner, let me just tell you, we are. You don't have to be an axe murderer to be a sinner. All you got to be is just imperfect. And, yeah, everybody qualifies. I've looked at enough of you to know. So all you got to be to be a sinner is imperfect. So, yes, it's true that people are sinners. That's fine. That's fine. But isn't it funny that when God first made us, he didn't say to the angels around him, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make something that will become a sinner. i got this great plan. Let's make human beings. Then they'll become sinners. It'll be great. It's not what he said. 
When he first made us, he called us something else. The image of God. The likeness of God. You know, I have the most wonderful dog in the world. I love her so much. She's about this big. And she adores me and I adore her. In fact, I wish I were back in Orlando tonight rather than being with you. So I could be with Princess. Okay? I adore her. But, you know, and Princess is a sinner too. She steals things and she feels guilty for stealing things. And it's amazing, really. But you know something? Princess will never pay for her sins. And Princess will never be redeemed from her sins. Why? Because she's a dog. And that's what makes you different. You're not. You're a human being. Which means even though you're a sinner, you're the image and the likeness of God. Now, doesn't that sound good? I mean, I know you tell your kids that, and I know you've heard that before. If you've been around Christianity at all, you've heard people are the image and the likeness of God. But that's a nice religious phrase, but if I were to hand out a piece of paper and ask everybody to write down what it means to be the image of God, we'd have as many answers as there are people in the room tonight. We've got a lot of religious phrases like that, that we use a lot, that we just don't have much idea what it might mean. So what does it mean to be the image of God? What's it mean to be his likeness? Well, to know that, you have to get in a time machine with me. Okay, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back, back, back to the days of Moses when he wrote that book, Genesis, okay? You know, way back to the days of pyramids and ziggurats, you know, Yul Brynner, Charlton Heston, those days, okay? Okay, and I want to tell you something that may shock you, but Israel, Moses was not the first person ever to use the expression image of God. The Egyptians used it. The Babylonians used it. All these ites that you read about in the Bible, they all used it. The Canaanites, the Assyrians, all those other countries you read about in the Bible that were existing in the days of the Bible, they all talked about the image of God, the likeness of God, the Son of God. They all used that expression. But let me tell you what it meant to them because it's really important to understand what God means when he says, let us make man in our image. In all of society, there was only one person who could rightly be called the image of God, the likeness of the gods, the son of the gods. Can you guess who that was? Only one. It was Yul Brynner. Okay, it was the Pharaoh. It was the king. It was the emperor. He was the image and the likeness of the gods. Nobody else. Everybody else was something a lot less than that. That's how they got the boss people around. It's because they were special and you weren't. And it's not hard to understand why they told people this. Because ancient politicians are just like modern politicians. They all think that they're God's gift to humanity, right? Don't they? Even if they're atheists, they'll tell you, I'm God's gift to you, so listen up. <laughs> Politicians, wow. Had enough of them yet? <laughs> well, anyway, in the ancient world, they would actually say this, I'm the son of God, I'm the likeness of God, I'm the image of God, and you are not. And it basically meant this, so kind of get the main idea here. It meant that it was the king's job to learn the will of the gods in heaven and to make it happen in their kingdom. That was their job. I mean, why are we going to build this city? Because God's told me to. Why are we going to put a road over here? Well, God told me to. Why are we going to make these storehouses? God told me to. And everybody else, get busy. And when you know that that's the way everybody in the ancient world of Moses talked, you can begin to get a sense of how radical Moses was when he told us the truth of what God actually said was his image. Because it wasn't just the Pharaoh who's the image and the likeness of God. 
Moses says in Genesis 1 that God said, let us make humanity in my image, in my likeness. Everybody is the image and the likeness of God. And that meant that everybody was to learn the will of God in heaven and make it happen on the earth. That's why God made you. You're not the end product of some random selection that might have happened so that you're nothing more than lucky mud. No, you're special. You're the image and the likeness of God put here on this earth to learn God's will and to make it happen down here. Can you imagine how hard that was for ancient Israelites to believe when Moses first wrote this book for them? I mean, they were slaves. They were former slaves. They, for, for hundreds of years, they had been propagandized by the Egyptians, and they had been told, you're nothing. The Pharaoh is the image of God. You're nothing. But here's Moses saying to these former slaves, it's not true. When God first made us, he said, everybody's the image and the likeness of God. You can imagine how hard it was for them to believe that because it's hard for you to believe. And you live in modern, western, democratic America. And even you and I have a hard time believing what this verse says. Think about it this way. I'm going to make a political statement. I know it's going to be touchy to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. I'm going to say something about our president, our current president, uh, that I believe everybody in the room is going to agree to. Does it, do you think that's possible? Be unusual, wouldn't it? All right, good. Well, let me try it here. You ready? Here's my statement about our president. Barack Hussein Obama is a very important man. Anybody disagree with that? Of course not. Because we all know exactly what that means. That means if he decides today that we're going to go this way, it's going to affect the whole course of human history in that direction. If he decides we're going that way, it's going to change the course of human history that way. He's a very important man. And of course, for that reason, we don't want him, oh, to have a headache. Can you imagine what he'd do with a migraine headache? You really don't want him to have a sinus infection? You don't want him to have a big fight with the first lady tonight? You can see that one, can't you? They had this big fight, and at the end of it, he says, oh, yeah, you don't like that? Well, watch what happens when I hit this red button. And he pushes the button and the whole world goes up in smoke. Uh, you really don't want that to happen. Because he's an important man. But what about you? There's probably somebody here tonight that has a migraine. There's probably somebody here tonight that has a sinus infection. Take a pill. If you came here with the flu, you should have stayed at home. Because we don't want you here. So leave, please. And you know what? If you go home tonight and have a big fight with your spouse, if you can find a red button to push, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> so what's that tell you? He's important, and you are not. His choices matter. Yours don't. What he decides to do will affect the course of human history and what you decide to do will have no effect whatsoever. And if that's what you believe about yourself, you are right where the evil one wants you to be. Because if that's what you believe about yourself, then you will waste your life away, numbing yourself with television numbing yourself with alcohol and other drugs, numbing yourself with the erotic, numbing yourself with entertainment so that you can bear the pain of being nothing. You wonder why you do all those things? That's the reason. Because my choices really don't matter. But here's the great news of the Bible. 
It's a lie. You are the image and the likeness of God. And that means that your life is just as important as the greatest king or the greatest queen, the greatest emperor, the greatest empress that has ever lived on this planet. That's how important you are to the plan of God. I kind of like that, frankly. Because I'm, I'm the kind of person that, you know, I'm looking at my life now, you know, I'm in the sunset, I'm fading quickly. And, um, and I'm kind of looking back over my life and saying to myself, is that, all there, is that all there's going to be to your life, Richard? I mean, what have you done with your life? So I kind of like the idea that I'm the image and likeness of God. And God's called me and he put me here on this planet to change the world, to make it like he wants it to be. What more honor could you want, Richard, than to do your part in that? But you see, that's the original floor plan of what it means to be a human. That's why you're on mission. That's why you're here. Is to learn what God in heaven wants to happen on the earth and to take your opportunity and make it happen. Can you believe that about yourself? If you haven't taught your children that, it's time to start teaching them that. And if you missed it with your children, teach it to your grandchildren. Because they need to discard the lie that their lives don't matter. And they need to begin to believe what God said. You are my image, my likeness. But do you know, sometimes you can have a, a great job title like that, like image of God, something like that, and the job itself can be terrible. You ever had one of those kinds of jobs? Anybody here had a great job title and you found out that the job was horrible? I did when I was 17. I was, I was teaching guitar in a music studio when I was in high school and I needed a full-time summer job. So I asked, I asked the owner, can I have a full-time job this summer? He said, sure. And I said, well, what will it be? He said, oh, I don't know. Let's just call you the assistant to the owner. Now I was 17. And when you're 17 and you hear you're going to be the assistant to the owner, you think that means you get to sit in this chair when he leaves the store and boss people around. So I'm ready for that one. That's going to be... I'm ready for that one. I've got to figure out what I'm doing so I can do it at the right moment. Um, that, I love that idea, you know, getting the boss people around. But I found out the first day of work that really being the assistant to the means you're as important as anybody. Most of you are probably more important than most people, even though you don't believe it. Okay? So it's a great job title, but let me just tell you something about when I got that job, I was going to be the assistant to the owner. <laughs> And I found out that really what it meant was I had to do everything everybody else didn't want to do. Like clean the windows, Richie will do that. Clean the toilets, Richie will do that. Deliver this grand piano all by himself, yeah, Richie will do that. <laughs> I actually did that once. Do, you remember, do, you, do any of you know that Laurel and Hardy clip where the piano's going down the stairs in San Francisco? <laughs> I've done that with a grand piano. I had it almost to the top. And boom, 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 boom. I mean, I just watched the thing fell all to pieces. They, they, Elmer glued it together and sold it like new. <laughs> so check out your grand piano. Um, but it really did happen to me. It was, a, it was a wonderful job title, but the job was horrible. It was my worst summer. I can remember it. Even worse than helping my dad add that room to his house. And, you know, I have, here's what's really great about being the image of God. It sounds nice. Oh, I'm as important as any king that's ever lived on the planet really not doing anything. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm as important as any king that, lived on the, that lives on the planet. That's what we say to ourselves. But let me tell you about this job. It's, the job itself is as good as the title sounds. That's a big difference. And I want you to hear what that job is. Can you hear me okay out there, out there in TV land? Here is what God says. Look at verse 28. Because right after calling them his image and his likeness, this is what God says in verse 28. He says, and God blessed them. You see, I told you it was good. And God blessed them and he said, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. What? If you've ever read the Bible, you've read those words before. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Now, as much as you may know those words from the Bible, let's just be truthful about this. For all that they mean in your life on a practical level, I may as well have said that to you in Russian. I mean, think about it this way. You know, you go to a party and you meet new people, you shake hands, you exchange names. What are they going to ask you within 30 seconds? What do you do, right? Well, when was the last time at a party you're shaking somebody's hand and you say, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm fruitful and multiply. How about you? <laughs> have you ever done that your whole life? Well, I have dominion over the earth. How's that going for you? I have to say, even in a Christian party, that would be the last thing you would even imagine saying. Am I telling the truth? Yeah. You would say anything but that. Well, I'm a bum. Well, I'm retired. Well, I'm a teacher. I'm this, I'm that. Anything but I'm fruitful and multiply, and I fill the earth, and I subdue it, and I have dominion over it. How's that going for you today? It's like the last thing that comes to mind. And here we are realizing that this is the first thing that God said to us about what we're supposed to do with our lives on this planet, and we ignore it. And then we get frustrated by the fact that we wonder, why am I here? Why can't I know what I'm supposed to be doing? Why doesn't my life have meaning? And we just shove these words right out of our minds. Shouldn't surprise you at all. In fact, if you know what you're doing with your life, you ought to be surprised if these words don't come to mind. You ought to be shocked. Wow, I got lucky. I stumbled into something. Because what God said in the beginning about us was that we're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. I know I'm weird. I know I am. People tell me that all the time. But I'm, I'm so weird that when I get up in the morning, it's not unusual for me to sit on the edge of the bed and ask myself, is it worth breathing again? Most people get up and keep breathing because they're afraid of the alternative. I'm not afraid to die. I've been close a few times and didn't bother me then, doesn't bother me now. So I'm not one of these people that keeps breathing just because I can't stand the thought of dying. When I get up out of the bed, it's not unusual for me to ask myself, Richard, why are you doing this? And this is the answer. The reason we breathe, the reason our hearts keep pumping, the reason our neurosynapses keep firing up there in our brains, I know they slow down and things, but they keep firing. The reason for this is so that we might be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. It is that simple. You see, that's what our mission is, isn't it? It's a funny thing about the Christian mission. The Christian mission did not begin when Jesus said, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not when it began. If that's when it began, then it was an add-on. It was an extra room. And of course, you're all going to say, no, no, I remember somebody said it began back there with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, when God told Abraham he'd be a blessing to all the nations. But even that would be an afterthought. Do you know when Jehovah's Witnesses say the first witness of Jehovah was? Do you know that, who they say he was? You need to ask them sometime. They'll tell you. They know the answer. Abel. The first man on mission. 
to Cain, his brother. But even that would be an add-on. You see, the mission did not begin with Jesus or with Abraham or even with Abel. The mission began right here in the beginning with Adam and Eve. That's how fundamental it is to your life. So that your human existence does not occur apart from you being on task. So maybe we should unpack it a little bit. I mean, if it's that important, if it's the original floor plan of what it means to be a human being, to be on mission for Jesus, well, then maybe we need to know a little bit about it. Might be worth a few minutes anyway. So we could do all five of those, but let's not. Let's just batch them up, okay? So let me just say the first thing that God said to them. He said, look, Adam and Eve, I want there to be more of you. Be fruitful and multiply. So many more of you that you fill the earth with images of God. Now, here's some news to all of you who call yourselves Presbyterian. From the beginning, God was interested, very interested in numbers. You know, we feel like we're doing God a favor if we have a church that has a couple of hundred people in it. But that wasn't the vision that God gave humanity in the beginning. The vision in the beginning was, I want there to be so many of my images that they fill the entire earth. From the beginning, it wasn't the Baptists who were interested in numbers. It was God who was interested in numbers. And we should be too. You know, I, I, I'm old enough to be sort of one of these people that just watches TV and watches the news and just complains all the time. In fact, you know, we've gotten to the point that we just have to sort of turn it off. We can take it in very small doses, but not very big doses. Because I'm like the old man. I can't believe this. Where's this whole world going to anyway? Like my grandfather used to do. That's what I do, okay? At least I don't have an easy chair to do it in. But I do it. Um, but, you know, when you see the collapse of Western culture around us, the culture that has been most influenced by Christianity in the world, uh, when you see it collapsing around you, um, you have to ask the question, why? And it's not that hard to understand. The reason that Western culture is collapsing into the horrific world that we are now living in, and it's going to get worse, it's not going to get better anytime soon, is because there are fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer of us. Because when Adam and Eve first heard these words, that was going to be a relatively easy thing for them to do. They have babies, they do the image of God thing. They have babies, they do the image of God thing. They have babies and do the image of God thing. It's a bunch of them, they fill up the world, game over. But something happened to the world. Do you remember what it is? It starts with an S, ends with an N. I'm in the middle of it, along with you. Uh-huh. Sin came into the world. And so this multiplying thing was no longer just have babies. It was now have the babies, but now you've got to teach them and train them up in the ways of God. That's why you spend all that money for your kids to go to the right school. That's why you have all that heartache over your kids. And it's not just your own children. Multiplying images of God now, redeemed images of God, means reaching out to your neighbor, caring about the people that live around you. Why do I need to care about people living around me? The answer is, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And all you gringos who just whine and whine about the fact that you're soon to be the minority in this county, how did that ever happen? And every time you see a Latino, you turn away from them. I know what it's like when you go to Walmart. I know what it's like. You see a white person, you say, hey, how's it going? You see a Latino, and you go, no.
too much truth on Friday night? Why should you be interested in those Latinos? The answer is more and more and more. Because while Western culture is collapsing around us because there are fewer and fewer and fewer servants of Christ in this world, the turnaround will not come by a politician becoming our president for four or to eight years. That's not going to fix it. That's not going to turn it around. As important as it is to have the right person in the presidency, don't misunderstand me, that's not going to fix it. But I'm sure you are a lot more enthusiastic about who became our next president than you are about more and more and more coming to Jesus. Because the only way to turn any culture around is for there to be more and more and more of us. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. You are a city set on the hill. You are the salt of the earth. So you wonder, why did we plant that church over there? Didn't that hurt our budget over here? I mean, doesn't our church need another coat of paint somewhere? Why are these pastors talking about planting another church? The answer is more and more and more and more. That's who we are. It's why we breathe. And that should be a big challenge to you and me. Because everybody in the room tonight, in one way or another, in the way that God has called you to do it, everybody ought to be able to put their finger on a way in which you are increasing the numbers of people who follow Jesus in this world. Can you do that? Can you think about how your money's being spent? Can you think about how your time's being spent? Can you think about who your friends are, who your enemies are, and ask the question, am I engaged in this thing called the mission? I love that. I mean, I'm involved in this thing where, you know, we're trying to win the world for Jesus kind of thing, this third millennium ministries thing I do, and people just think I'm crazy. They really think I'm crazy. Why would you give up teaching in a nice job in a seminary, which was like the easiest job in the universe? Okay, why would you give that up, as old as you are, and do this other thing? Well, the answer is simple for me. It's why I breathe more and more and more followers of Jesus. Okay, so that's one side of our mission, is for there to be more of us. But do you hear the other side? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion and we could go on and on about what that means but it's really not that hard it basically means make the world the kind of place I want it to be in the very beginning there was only one place on the earth that was so spectacular that God would come there in his visible glory and be present with Adam and Eve. Do you remember the name of that place? Garden of Eden. And it was inside of a nice place called the Land of Eden. But outside of that, there was a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. A lot of ditches to be dug. A lot of rivers to be turned. A lot of irrigation to be done. A lot of gardening. A lot of work. Oh, yeah, it was a lot. And that's what God is saying to them. I want you to go out there and subdue the earth. Have dominion over the earth. I mean, the snake had to come from somewhere. He didn't come from within the garden. He came from outside the garden. So in the very beginning, the world was waiting for someone to bring it into everything it's supposed to be. Because, you see, that little garden where God would display his visible glory wasn't enough for our God. God's plan was for the whole world to be turned into such a beautiful, wondrous, holy place that his glory, his visible glory, would shine everywhere in the world. Which is exactly what the Bible says is going to happen at the end when Jesus comes back. 
There will no, be, no, be no need for the sun and the moon. They're, they're afterthoughts here because God's glory will light up the world. And whom did he call to make the world that kind of place? You. You. The human race. See, a lot of times we think that what God is going to do is that he's just going to snap his fingers and he's going to do it himself. No way. No way. Because in the beginning he said, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to defeat Satan. I'm going to defeat evil through little, tiny, little clay images like you. Flesh and blood. And that's how I'm going to receive glory. It's because flesh and blood is going to defeat the greatest evil in all of creation. That's why we are here. So, when we have mission, we always have our sort of evangelistic things. What else do we do? We help mothers who are struggling with whether to keep their babies or not. We build schools. We have after-school programs. We stand up for people who cannot stand up for themselves. We show mercy. We seek justice for people. This is who we are. Why? Because that's the kind of place that God wants this world to be. And he's ordained you and me as his image and his likeness to do just that. Just like he did Adam and Eve in the very beginning. It's magnificent to think that your time on this planet is a part of that. Well, Adam and Eve fell into sin and it got all messed up. So let me just ask you this question. How are you doing in this multiplying and how are you doing in this having dominion over the earth? Well, Adam and Eve didn't do so well in the beginning. Uh, Israel, who picked it up after that, they kind of did okay a little bit, but even they failed. Then Jesus comes and you know how it goes. Look at your life. But this is why God's people from ancient times prayed over and over and cried out forever that someone would finally get it right. That somebody would actually fill the world up with redeemed images of God and that someone would make the world into the kind of place that the Father wants it to be. They prayed for that person. They longed for that person. And you know his name. Did you ever wonder why Jesus became one of us? It's because God ordained in the beginning that we would be the ones to change the world. And so, the second person of the Trinity became one of us, and now he is filling the whole world with redeemed images of God. And when he returns, there will be no evil, no death, no suffering. It has all gone away because he will make all things new. That's why we serve him. That's why we put our hope in him. Because he's the one that did it right. And in the meanwhile, while we wait for him to come back, we've got this great opportunity. It goes like this. Remember how Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, he said, look guys, all, that's in the Greek, you look guys, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, do you know what that means? This is Jesus of Nazareth, born in 4 B.C. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In effect, what he's saying is, I'm all that. I was that good that the Father approved of me so much that he's given me everything. 
Now, if you and I had been Jesus at that moment, you know what we would have said next. Okay, everybody, sit back and watch the show because I'm going to be magnificent. But it's not what he did, is it? He said, because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And don't worry, I will be with you right up to the end. Now, today, we feel as if we're on the downside, like we're fighting a losing cause. But think about what the world was like when Jesus said that to his apostles. They were the only ones in the world, the only ones in the world that knew him. And they stood before an entire human race that was absolutely opposed to them. And he looked at them and he said, you don't have to worry about that. I'm all that. I'm going to win. And I'll be with you wherever you go right up to the end. See, I think we understand what my mother meant. I don't want that room to look like it was added to the house. Because a lot of us have lived with this thing called the mission as if it is something we'll add to our Christian life once we get around to it. But the word from Genesis 1 is this. It's the original floor plan of what it means to follow Jesus. It's the original floor plan of what it means to be a human being. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bless you. We thank you that you were born the very image and likeness of God and that unlike us, you did it like it's supposed to be done. You are our only hope. Holy Spirit, we confess to you that we just don't have the ability even to remember these things, much less believe them and obey them unless you touch us. So may the power that raised Jesus from the dead raise us from the dead. Amen.